2: Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Good morning. It's
3: 830 on Thursday, June 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, changes to the food stamp program have affected thousands of single Mississippians. We'll see how they're doing one year later. Students planning to attend one of Mississippi's junior colleges will have to put more aside this fall. Hear from community college officials on the new tuition increase. The results of a recent analysis show Mississippi is one of the worst states for working fathers, find out why and travel through time in mississippi as author darden north dishes on his new book the five manners of death that's all coming up this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio Mississippians receiving government assistance have been required to show evidence they are looking for work or to find other means to purchase food. SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, provides food stamps for three months within a 36-month period. In the past, Mississippi received a waiver to extend benefits year-round due to the state's rate of poverty and unemployment. But Governor Phil Bryant didn't request the waiver last year. Instead, new guidelines now require childless adults between the ages of 18 and 49 to work at least 20 hours per week, look for work, be in a training program, or do community service to receive food stamps. At the same time, some Mississippi food pantries, including Stew Pot Community Services in Jackson, say they're seeing more single childless adults seeking help because they don't qualify for food stamps. Beth Orlansky is the Advocacy Director at the Mississippi Center for Justice. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser how the requirements have affected people.
4: So in January of 2016, Governor Bryant made a decision not to continue seeking a waiver from the federal government for a special class of people we call abods able-bodied adults without dependents so it's people 18 to 49 years old who are not don't have children at home or elderly parents they're taken care of and the rule is that if they um, don't have some kind of gainful employment then they're limited to three months of SNAP benefits over a three-year period. Um, We had qualified for a waiver from that rule since Katrina, I believe, but certainly since the 2008 uh, recession, and still qualified. The federal government recognizes that the unemployment rate in Mississippi is so high that the people out of work can't necessarily find employment in three months. But the governor made the decision that everyone needed to work, and so they are taking away people who have benefits. At the same time, the state imposed a mandatory employment and training component, which requires people to show up for appointments and to um, do some kind of job training. The state is not providing employment and training slots for them to to use for workforce development, but they're just saying you've got to find something and do it. So between the two, a lot of people, most most everybody in that age category has lost their benefits in the last year and a half. When you talk about you have to find something to do, can you clarify that a a, a bit? Uh, There are various things that qualify for employment and training. So it could be uh, job search is something where you have to go get... um, uh, employers to sign that you have asked for a job every day for a certain number of possibilities every day for a week or two weeks or a month, whatever it is. Um, and it's it, it's just not always practical. People don't always have the transportation they need. They're in their little town where they live, there may not be 15 or 20 employers who could offer employment. Um, we would be very happy if the state provided uh, Training for people to be able to get jobs that would pay—we are very much in favor of people being employed, but the opportunities are just not there in much of rural Mississippi. What about the Wynn Job Centers? Do they have any type of workforce training? They do, and and they are effective, but they're not—they don't have enough. And so, what is the issue then? The issue is that this is a very harsh rule that when people are between jobs and they need something uh, to do to be able to earn money, the last thing we need to do is to take food out of their mouths. The amount of money people get on SNAP is very small. The entire benefits come from the federal government, so it doesn't hurt the state of Mississippi to... To, to keep this waiver in place as long as it has been recognized as being available. Most states have lost the waiver because their employment is more robust than ours. But as long as we qualify for it, we believe that we should take advantage of it and at the same time help people to be gainfully employed. One other problem with it is that um, we are afraid that people are not recognizing exemptions that they're entitled to. So the the law does provide that if you are incapable of working, um, mentally or physically, as long as some kind of medical professional signs off on it, then you're supposed to be exempt. If you've got an elderly parent, you're exempt. Um, If you're homeless, you're exempt. So, So there are ways, but people are not necessarily understand that they might be exempt and they just lose their benefits
3: mississippi is ranked as the hungriest state in the nation coming up community college tuition is up but leaders say not to worry this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio
5: informative mpb news stories the local shows you love up-to-date severe weather info and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of mississippi you're listening to mpb think radio
3: Community and junior colleges across Mississippi are raising tuition costs in the wake of budget cuts. Some fear the increase will affect enrollment as potential students plan for the future. Some of the state's community and junior colleges are eliminating jobs for the upcoming year to close budget gaps, and five are dropping at least one intercollegiate sport in an effort to avoid passing on the entire load to students. The moves come as the 15 community colleges increase tuition by an average of 13%, mostly because state funding has fallen. Kel Smith is Director of Communication and Legislative Services for the Mississippi Community College Board. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware more about the increase.
5: For the upcoming school year, tuition and required fees at the 15 community colleges is going to be $3,100. Uh, it's a 13% increase on average across the system. Uh, You know, part of the reason for the increase in tuition is because of reduced uh, state appropriations. The colleges are receiving about $26 million less in FY18 compared to what they were appropriated in FY2017. And so they uh, have to make ends meet and be able to keep the doors open and provide a a quality education. And so the tuition increases weren't taken lightly. Uh, Each board of trustees at the community colleges Uh, deliberated uh, the tuition amounts and came up with the rates they did for the upcoming year.
0: So did the community colleges have any input or was this just a across-the-board decision?
5: No, each community college is in charge of setting its own tuition and fees. Uh, Each community college has its own board of trustees that approves uh, those fees for the school year.
0: What would likely be the impact of these changes for potential students?
5: For some potential students, it could be a a financial hurdle to overcome, and the colleges recognize that. Our colleges have a lot of low-income students, and whenever tuition increases uh, and tuition amounts are approved and increases are the result, You know, those decisions aren't taken lightly. Students are always the first consideration on anything like this is done. But ultimately, the colleges have to be able to maintain a quality option and quality education. And so that's, you know, part of the reason that they happen. I feel like uh, our colleges recognize the the hardships that students have and and parents have. And so um, the decisions weren't made lightly. Everything was considered at the end of the day the colleges were forced to, to raise tuition to the amount they did.
0: Were any other solutions deliberated or considered before deciding to raise tuition?
5: Absolutely. Um, our colleges have had to uh reduce workforces. Our colleges have had to examine programs and, and close a few programs. Um athletic programs were looked at a couple of colleges closed athletic programs. Um you know the budget reality is that in FY 2018, which begins in a few weeks, the colleges will have about $26 million less in state support. And so all options were on the table. Uh, one of the pieces was tuition being being raised.
0: What are your concerns about how the tuition increases is going to affect enrollment across the state?
5: It has the potential to uh, limit post-secondary educational opportunities for students, for sure. And, you know, our, our state relies on an educated workforce. Our business and industry rely on skilled workers. And so community colleges are the entities that provide uh, those folks. And so the result of having less students in community colleges could have a negative impact on the state in the long run.
0: Kel Smith, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. The independently governed schools made their
3: own decisions about cuts. Ronnie Nettles is president of Capaya Lincoln Community College. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware about the increase at Colin.
2: Well at Colin we had about a one point two million dollar cut in our appropriation this year. So we had to look at ways to you know adjust to that. So our tuition increase was a per semester about I think. Uh, We went up $205 on tuition, and then there was some required fees that made it go up another $20 or so. So
0: what is the percentage of the increase?
2: Well, for Colen, I think uh, the numbers that I've seen uh, is a 16% increase uh, in one year. But uh, for us, we don't usually deal with tuition every year. So for example, last year at our college, we did not have a tuition increase we were one of only three or four in the state that did not. So, you know, we try to do this every other year as opposed to increases every year. We evaluate it every other year as opposed to every So our percentage is a little bit more. Uh, but in general, there's not a whole lot of spread between the tuition costs at all the colleges. So while some of them may have had smaller increases uh, percentage-wise, the, the cost is relatively the same. We're all trying to maintain the lowest possible tuition rate that we can for our area. What we know is that if we increase too much, then it has an impact on enrollment. And, you know, that's the last thing we want to do is affect accessibility for our students, for our potential students. And so you have to be very careful about increasing tuition.
0: What is the anticipated effect on enrollment?
2: Obviously, a large number of our students, especially at Colin and many of the other colleges, are dependent on various types of aid. So There's really no way to predict that. It's very difficult to say what the impact would actually be. I think we're just very careful um, to not go up too much at any one time because you don't don't want to limit access for students.
0: Before the college increased tuition, were there any other changes made to accommodate the budget cuts?
2: Absolutely. You know, you, you can't rely on tuition to solve your budget problem. It's just not a good thing to do It's not good for the students and it's really not a good way to run the college you have to look at ways that you can reduce spending and so you know initially we looked at what we could do reduce spending and I think this is probably true at all the other colleges what we could do to to lower our budgets and that could include a number of different things and it's different for different schools but for us it was to cut some programs and things that we didn't need we did some across-the-board budget cuts and then we had a number of positions that we chose not to fill going forward uh, into the next budget year. So, you know, we did all those things, and then you still have to, to figure out what you're going to do to maintain the quality of the instructional programs that you have, the faculty that you have, all those things that are important to the operation of the college, and you have to figure out how to, how to balance all of that.
0: Ronnie Nettles is the president of Kapaya Lincoln Community College. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alexis.
3: Colleges start the current budget next year, or excuse me, started the current budget year with $265 million in state funding, but will start next year with $237 million. Coming up, fatherhood in Mississippi is a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Find out just how tough. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Working fathers in the Magnolia State have a tough role as parent and provider. A recent analysis by personal finance website WalletHub ranks Mississippi as one of the worst states for working dads. Analysts found that while 93% of dads with young kids are working, it's actually health factors that cause concern. Jill Gonzalez is with WalletHub. She tells us what they found
1: right now about 93% of dads with kids younger than 18 are also employed. So to really determine the best states for those men who play that dual role of parent and provider, we compared all 50 states plus D.C. across 22 different indicators of friendliness toward working fathers. And that data set ranges from the average length of a workday for males to child care costs to the share of men in good or better health.
3: And looking at Mississippi, it's not a pretty picture. Number one being best and 25 being average, we don't have a 25 or below through all of these different factors. Can you talk about in general, this is life as a working dad. And in Mississippi, what are the biggest hurdles or or downfalls?
1: There's a few things that Mississippi could use the most improvement in. One, you know, is that working part of the working dad. There's not too many job opportunities right now in Mississippi. We looked at the number of job openings currently minus the male unemployment rate. Right now the unemployment rate for males is just at around 6%. That is, again, in the bottom 10 here. So the job market certainly could use some help. When we're looking at other types of things here, we're seeing that these, Overall health for men is again not the best either. We're seeing high prostate, colon, and other types of cancer risks, heart disease here as well.
3: Yeah, we come in 50th place for deaths due to heart disease, but I think the most chilling statistic is we come in last place, 51st place for male life expectancy.
1: Exactly. So, of course, you want to be a dad for as long as possible. And right now, the life expectancy in Mississippi is the lowest in the country, only just around 71 years old. We're seeing other states up to the 80s now. So, a vast difference here. And again, that comes back to the types of health problems that exist there more prevalently. Heart disease is a major one. And we're also seeing a pretty high uninsured rate for males. So, when males are facing these problems, Many of them are doing so without health insurance.
3: Does that mean the jobs they're holding don't offer insurance or they're just not getting insurance on their own?
1: I would say a combination of the two. So when we're seeing uh, how many males actually are offered private health coverage from employers, that number is also pretty low.
3: 28th we came in for unemployment rate for dads with kids younger than 18. Would that indicate that is a two-person household and that mom is taking care of the kids and dad's able to work? Most
1: of these are two-parent households, all dad present, but most of them also have two working parents.
3: It means that men are getting jobs, the unemployment rate, even though Mississippi has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country or one of the highest unemployment rates in the country.
1: Right. So today, two-thirds of family households depend on two incomes in Mississippi. That male unemployment rate is middle of the pack. The female unemployment rate is even higher.
3: The worst-case scenario is that men are unhealthy in Mississippi, that they're unhealthy in a number of ways, which leads to job loss or the inability to work, and then they die young.
1: I think health really comes into play the most for Mississippi. And obviously you want to be sticking around for your kids for as long as possible. In Mississippi, that's what I think could use the most work.
3: So we need to get our men healthier and need to get them jobs. It sounds like Jill Gonzalez is with Wallet Hub. And I thank you so much for being with us, Jill. Anytime. With Father's Day approaching, Mississippi dads may need to take a day off work and get a wellness checkup. Coming up, a conversation with author Darden North about his novel of suspense. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
6: Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Readers throughout the state can get their hands on a new thriller with scenes that travel through Mississippi towns. The Five Manners of Death was released in April. Award-winning author Darden North is also a doctor by trade, but this time he's delivering another mystery novel. In today's book club, the Mississippi Delta native tells us the five different categories of death.
6: Accident, suicide, natural causes, undetermined, and everyone's favorite, homicide.
3: Now, you have potential crimes that date back to, what, the 1960s? Correct, correct. This is a thriller, as all your books are, so let's talk about that a little bit. What draws you to thrillers?
6: The unknown, you know, in a thriller, the readers know more about what's going on than the characters do. The readers know there's some bad guy or girl out there or maybe not a human. You know, something's out there that's going to get the characters and do them in. The characters may know that something's not right, but they don't really understand the gravity of the situation. I think that's more interesting than just starting off with a dead body and and a whodunit.
3: And this one in particular has a lot of twists and turns to it. It does.
6: And that's what I think surprising your readers and always giving them the unexpected at the end of the chapter to make them want to turn the page to the next chapter. That's what that's what it's about.
3: Sure, take them in one direction and then toss them exactly. in another direction. Exactly. When you write, do you have an outline? Do you work in chronological order? Or do you start with a thriller because you have to know how it ends? Do you start at the back and work forward? Well,
6: sometimes you think you know how it ends and you may change that. I use a um, synopsis uh, really more like a, just a paragraph to start off with. And it's taken me a while to get to the point I can do that because I thought it was very confining to have it all laid out in the beginning. And that's hard to do. But if you can at least take a synopsis that maybe doesn't have the ending and just build upon that, then that's going to help you later on in describing the book or or having to actually actually write a true synopsis of the book for a publisher or an agent. If you start off with that, you've got that one task behind you. And then an outline is not necessarily an out- outline like an English paper with A, B, C, D. It's just basically some ideas and three or four main characters to build on. If you'll, if you'll do that, it is, it is easier.
3: You are an OBGYN. You're sitting across from me wearing scrubs. This is your fifth novel. How can you possibly be a doctor with, we know, especially an OBGYN, I, I assume you deliver babies occasionally. I do, and still. they don't happen on schedule. So where do you fit in the writing?
6: Fortunately, for me, I'm in a group with several other doctors, and everyone has other things they do. They may play golf or they may have small children or other things that keep you know take them away from the office so it's able I'm able to balance it out with with vacation. The medicine is very important, and i practice full time and certainly have not let any of that any of that go but it's nice to have something else it's just a little bit different to think about to take your mind away from other things. Do you
3: have a writing schedule?
6: I really don't I wish I did. It would be nice to get up first thing in the morning and write, but I usually have to get up, go to work early. But I can get a lot done sometimes on the weekends, and I I try to leave each day's writing with an idea to work on the next time so that I can just pick up and go.
3: Given that, how long did it take you to write this book?
6: Between uh, the release of The Five Minutes of Death and Wiggle Room, my last book has been four years. But course the last six months has had to do with you know edit the editing process sure. and things like that it, it took a good two years to actually get it to get it finished
3: i think this book grabs you right away in the prologue there's a skull that's discovered and, and scares Correct. a man, which is very, I mean, it is a very funny prologue in his reaction. Good. And then knowing Good. that others have heard that reaction him right. screaming at his skull, that must play an important part in the coming chapters.
6: Well, it does. And I, I, made, I had the prologue, of course, to to get someone interested in, in what was going on. And then um, as you read through the book, then it ties back to the prologue. That's the way a, a prologue
3: works. I forgot to say Mm -hmm. that this is a Mississippi setting. Yes. Oh, yes. Have you started on the next one yet?
6: I'm ready to. I've got about four or five different, maybe maybe six ideas. I'm ready to get started. Another Uh, thriller? It'll be a thriller. It'll be a thriller.
3: Are you ever Mm -hmm. tempted to go off that path to try another genre?
6: If I had the time, I would love to do a historical fiction novel, something like that.
3: This book is called The Five Manners of Death, and the author is Darden North or Dr. Darden North. Thanks for coming in. Best of luck with the book.
6: Thank you so much, Karen.
3: Learn more about this Mississippi author at dardanorth.com. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, you can find past episodes of this and other... MPB Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 on MPB Think Radio.